setting aside one day in seven so that we might rest from all unwanted labors and seek you. We thank you for that glorious truth which our fathers uh, said that uh, the Lord's day is the market day of the soul. And we confess that we live in low times and we live in times that are not dramatic when it comes to spiritual things and spiritual experience. And more than that, the powerful working of God the Holy Spirit in, in great measure. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you are working, that you are calling people to yourself. You have not left us like Sodom and Gomorrah. There is still a remnant and we thank you, O Lord, that we have in this country peace and uh, safety to assemble together. We know of believers around the world who do not have this freedom. Some of them are arrested. Some of them meet in secret. Many of them have no facility to meet together. But Lord, we thank you that you will... Uh, you have promised that you will bless the meeting of your people wherever they are if they are gathered together in your name based upon the work of the Son of God and the revealed Word of God. And so we believe not because we want to believe in some sentimental fashion, the tradition of the elders, but because your Word promises us that wherever two or three are gathered together, you are in our midst. You are in our midst is really as when the disciples experienced you being in their midst. In fact, you are here after the completion of your work and the pouring of, the, of God the Holy Spirit and giving us the written scriptures on which we might say that you are surely and assuredly the redeemer of all those who come to you. We just sang... I greet thee whom I sure redeemer art. The surety of your redemption is not based upon our assertion or even our faith, but it is based upon the surety of the word of God and the promises of Christ that whoever comes through Christ will be saved. In fact, the Apostle John reminds us that to as many as believe in his name, he gave them the right to be the children of God. And we do not deserve it. Far from it. Although often we behave like we are better than other people. And there is some sort of uh, deserving in us. We pray that you will teach us to consider all those things as anathema. Become because of the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for your people here. We pray that you will bless them and prosper them in the inner man and in every other way that you see fit, that you will sanctify the difficulties of your people to their souls and their eternal good. But we also pray for healing and restoration if it is your will. But if not, Lord, we pray that you will be glorified. We pray for these, uh, the various endeavors of the church according to the scriptures that you will bless uh, the work of your people. We're reminded of those great um, times in the New Testament where we read of the little boy with a very few fish and 
a few pieces of bread for himself. And Lord, much of what we do, much of our talents is just like that. And so we do not depend upon it, neither do we despair because of it. We come asking you by the Spirit to take whatever you've given us, purify it, and use it to the blessing and prosperity of your people and then spilling over to those who are outside. We pray for these, this generation growing up. We pray for little children growing up in this world. We know that you preserved Daniel and many thousands of others in a pagan society like Babylon. And we know that you can preserve our children and your children's grandchildren. We pray for all those parents and relatives and loved ones who long and pray for the salvation of those close to them. Lord, we pray that you will work omnipotently, that we bring back those who are gone into the far country. Pray for those who are backslidden. We know what that is ourselves. We can be in the pulpit and be backslidden. And how often you've brought us back. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together as we sing your praises. Most importantly, we pray that you will join our hearts to bless the thrice holy name of Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pardon our every sin, especially the sins that we ignore, the sins that are deep within us, the sins that we consider presumptuously that grace is sufficient for all things. Help us to repent. Help us to search our own hearts. But at the same time, not despairingly, help us to repent believingly so that we will turn to the Savior of sinners, even Jesus the Christ. Give wisdom and strength and perseverance to those who are involved in the leading and the preaching and the teaching. Give steadfastness and commitment to all those who come. And we pray that you will bless the churches of Jesus Christ in every place. For these things we ask in the mighty name of our great Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen. Before we come to the word, let's stand and sing hymn number 320. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. Hymn number 320.
Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. I want to read beginning at verse 38 to 42, a very familiar passage. So we'll be reminding ourselves of things we already know. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much, much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister had left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary had chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Well, we read from the first epistle of Peter, and Peter the Apostle says in his epistles that he is going to keep on reminding those suffering Christians about the truths that they already know. The Apostle Paul, I think it is in Philippians, says that to say the same things to you is no trouble to me at all, and is profitable for you. Sometimes we are like Athenians, aren't we? We like to hear new and dazzling things. But remember, and pardon the repetition, but one of the most important words in the Bible is what? Remember. Remember what we already know. Well, the, the table is about that. It's not only about remembering, but it is about remembering. And so... Let's look at this passage which we already are very familiar with. In the first verse that we read in our text, verse 38, we had given some details. Now, details are important, if not for any other reason, for the reason that it is given to us in the scriptures. We are given here geography and we are given some familial, that is family connections. And it also relates in the understanding of what went on before and in the context of everything. And what we are told here is that Jesus entered into a certain village. And we know from John's Gospel in chapter 11 that the village in which Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived was called Bethany. Now that village is about 1.9 miles from Jerusalem on the way down to Jericho. And the earlier portion of this chapter is about the Samaritan and the stories on the road to Jericho. Uh, We are told in the 11th chapter of John that Jesus loved Lazarus. Of course, is the brother 
of Mary and Martha. In the fifth verse of that same chapter, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's wonderful, isn't it? There was a special love relationship between Jesus and this family. And we're also told that when Jesus entered this certain village, Martha received him into her house. So this is not Jesus knocking on the door, which he could very well do because they had a close relationship. But we are told here that Martha took the initiative and received him. Most probably means she invited him to come to her house. And then in verse 39, we are told that uh, there is this other sister, Mary. John's gospel is not yet written while Luke is writing this, of course. But from our vantage point, we know this. And what Mary is doing is sitting at Jesus' feet. Now we get a good picture of what's actually happening. Martha is excited that Jesus is in the village. She's invited him to come home to her, to their home. And then we are suddenly introduced to Mary who does what we are told. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha has taken the initiative. Martha is doing things so that there will be a meal prepared. But then we have this Mary who is doing nothing but sitting at Jesus' feet. She doesn't say a word in this whole episode. She does nothing. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. Well, Martha is running around trying to get a meal ready. Of course, in the Torah, women were not forbidden to learn, but it was not the usual thing. I mean, even today, there are many men who think and maybe wish that a woman's place is in the kitchen. But Martha is quite doing what is quite acceptable while Mary is not doing what is the normally accepted thing in the culture. And this must have been very infuriating for Martha. Now we must not spiritualize everything that is written about people in the scriptures. It would be very normal and it's quite evident from the text as we'll see in a moment and as you already know. She's running around doing everything with no one to help her. Not only from her perspective, but even from our perspective. So we're told that she was distracted or anxious about doing what she needed to do. So then Dr. Luke tells us that Martha 
is not only encumbered with a lot of doing, but her internal anxiety boils over. And she says to Jesus, Lord, verse 40, does thou not care that my sister had left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And you see what's happening here. I remember growing up in India. When I was a little boy, I lived with my grandparents. And if we had a visitor or something special was happening, they would go out into the backyard and go to the chook house, the hen house. And then he would begin this, what I thought was cruel and curious activity of trying to catch this hen. And then, of course, there's this bizarre ritual that takes place. You catch it, you cut its throat, you drain its blood, you dip it in boiling water. I mean, if you're squeamish like me, you know, the meal is almost impossible to eat after all this. But the point is, this is not like our days, is it? I mean, we go to our refrigerator or at worst, or jump in the car and go to the supermarket. Cooking a meal was a long, drawn-out affair. It took time and effort. They had to start the fire, and so on. And all the time, Mary is sitting there, not speaking or doing anything at all. And so her whole agitation boils over. She, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that she's quite infuriated. Because what we see is that she doesn't speak to Mary about this. I mean, all of us who are married know that when we say something wrong or our spouses may be saying something that they shouldn't, we might say, Excuse me, but can I speak to you for a minute? You'd expect something like that from Martha, but no. What she has doing now, she's coming to the Lord Jesus himself. You see, she's annoyed with the Lord himself. Listen to the words that she says. She approached him. She's not worried about approaching Mary. She's approaching the Lord Jesus himself. And then the verse 40, he gives us all these details. It's there right in the text. Lord, do you not care? And she probably thought something like this. She said, we all know that Mary is the dreamy type. She's the more studious type. And we can make some sort of a, an allowance for Mary because that's her character type, especially in the 20th, 19th, mostly in the 20th century and so on. We like to psychologize everything and everyone. I remember being in Sydney, Australia, and a friend of mine who used to be a minister, but later on uh, went uh, into business for himself. Uh, he used to take certain texts and psychologize everything because he became a counselor. But that's not the point of the story here. 
as we are told, it's not a story, it's actually a factual episode. She's not concerned about Mary. She is agitated with the Lord Jesus himself. Look at the way she puts it. Lord, do you not care? And if we are an absolutely thick and uncaring person, we might speak like this. But I don't think anyone of us would speak to a guest like this, let alone the Lord Jesus. Do you not care? that my sister has left me to serve alone. And then she has some advice for Jesus. Look what she says. Therefore, tell her to help me. It reminds me a little bit uh, of what Peter did on a higher degree of uh, boldness. You know, he began to rebuke the Lord Jesus because he didn't like the whole idea of suffering of the Messiah. He wanted a triumphal Messiah. It's akin to that, not the same degree. But you see, this is a very bold and it's a statement that crosses every line of etiquette, let alone spiritual understanding. I don't think that it is going beyond the text at all. In fact, I think the text indicates she's quite annoyed, beginning with Mary, and then it boils over to the Lord Jesus himself. And then we have really the most unexpected response of the Lord Jesus. And it begins with what he often, or the way that he often addressed Peter, look what he says, Martha, Martha. Remember how many times he says in the Bible, Simon, Simon. So he begins with that. And then he says, you are careful and troubled about many things. Now, before we apply this text, we must remember that serving the Lord in practical ways is an absolute necessity. You cannot love the Lord and not serve him. And the way you serve him, you serve the church of Christ in practical ways. And the people of God. Remember the Lord Jesus says that. If you give a glass of cold water and the like. And that's where you begin. With the household of God first. So before we get to the emphasis of the passage, there's not an either-or issue. We need to give ourselves to serving the Lord. And of course, there are people who are hurt. This happens, doesn't it? People get hurt in a particular church. It might be the fault of the leadership. It might be the fault of other people. It might be their own fault. But people do get hurt. And so if they walk into the church, you don't want to give them responsibilities without allowing them for time and restoration and so on. But we all know that if we are mature, we must work and serve the Lord within and beginning with the confines of the church and the people of God. So that's absolutely important. 
But the Lord Jesus here actually rebukes Martha. It's a gentle rebuke, but it is a rebuke. We don't like this word. You know, I often hear people saying that was an encouraging word. Now, we misunderstand what encouraging means in the first place, and I don't want to get into that lest we, our time uh, is, is shortened uh, to consider the main thing. But remember, the Bible is given to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. And when we read it, we must ask ourselves, where is the portion, or what is it that reproves me? It's true for the preacher. The preacher must not, and this is one of the great sins of preachers, and I include myself in it. We read the scriptures, uh, not only to benefit, but to preach, but we must first and foremost ask ourselves, what's the doctrine that I need to be reminded of? What's the correction that I need? What's the reproof? Or think of the Apostle Paul. He said, we preach Christ. How? Warning every man. So he, this is a rebuke. I mean, I hear all these people soft-pedaling over the rebukes. And if you read the gospel, the Lord Jesus not only rebukes, he pronounces woe. If we think we can build up a church just by caressing people or scratching where they heard, well, you'd be building up a bunch of people, but not according to the scriptures. And so the Lord says, here, you're careful and troubled about many things. Now, what's he saying? Well, he's talking about priorities here. Interesting, if you look at verse 20 in chapter 10, he does the same thing about joy. Let me read verse 20 of the same chapter. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not. Well, I should read verse 18 and 19 so we are familiar with what this is by background. Verse um, 18, he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents, scorpions, and over all things. Excuse me. Uh, verse 17. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, you know the background of this chapter in chapter 10 and verse 1. He's sending out 70 disciples two by two. Now, they come back, and they've had great success. And they're rejoicing in this. They're rejoicing in the success of the appointed work that the Lord had given them. Do you see what the Lord is doing here in verse 20? Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not. If I can put it in the language that we are often used to. He says, do not rejoice in this. It's an imperative sentence. What's he saying? He's saying, don't put this joy as your primary source of joy and happiness. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. This is the work that the Lord has anointed them and empowered them to do. But rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. People of God, if you look to your own sanctification, if you're like me, you will despair often. 
If you look at the growth of the church in numbers, in our day, at least in the West, most places in the West, church numbers and church attendance and church commitment is decreasing. You will not rejoice in that. If you look at anything else, then the Lord himself and his saving grace upon you. So it's a matter of priorities. Augustine lived in the 4th century and died in the 4th century. The greatest mind that the church has known and even the Western culture. Augustine said this, the very essence of sin is disordered loves. In chapter 9 of Luke, remember the Lord Jesus says, unless you hate father or mother, you cannot be my disciple. That again, that's not an absolute statement. It's absolutely true. I'm not saying that, I'm not propagating relative truth as opposed to absolute truth. But it's not an absolute statement in the sense what the Lord is saying here is, that in relation to the love of God, we must have ordered love. That's the first commandment, isn't it? Love Jehovah your God with all your hearts and souls and minds. You see, the disciples were overjoyed at what they were able to do for the Lord. And we can too. And the Lord says, do not rejoice in that. Order your joys aright. Order your priorities aright. In chapter 9, order your loves aright. Preachers can love to preach. Preacher, teachers can do that. But you see, our first love, we need to order our loves and even our joys. And this is a theme that the Holy Spirit through Dr. Luke is weaving through here in this chapter. And so what the Lord Jesus tells Martha is, don't worry about everything else, not at all. Because look what he says. One thing is needful. What he means by that is one thing is and should be the priority of God's people. She could have done many things. She could have asked Mary to, Mary to help her and then she could come and sit down. They could both sit and learn at the Lord Jesus' feet. But she was more interested in doing than being. And what is it that is most needful? It is the Word. It's interesting. There are no chapters, as you know, in the Bible. They're very helpful, chapters and verses. But what's the next section? It's prayer. What's central to the life of the church and the Christian? It's the Word and prayer. We might be interested in a whole host of other programs. I was talking to a good friend of mine uh, last month. He goes to a large church. They get about 200 people. I said, well, how many do you get in the evening? He said, hmm, 30 to 40. Now, of course, we've got to make allowances. Young mothers with children, people who have health issues. You know, we, we cannot be hard about these things. Men and women, young people, should make their own decisions as to their ability. So if they're unwell or the like. Can you imagine that? 200 people in the morning and 30 people in the evening. I said, what about prayer meetings? Oh, well, 
we only have one prayer meeting a month. I said, how many turn up to that? I said, 40, maybe 50 at times. The word in prayer. So we can, we can have a whole lot of drama going on. And none of those things are wrong in their own place. I mean, I'm not suggesting you should have drama instead of worship, but the word in prayer is central. Even the architecture of the church, the centrality of the pulpit, it's not to exalt a man, it's to put the word at the center of the life of the church. There's a great um, Eric Alexander who just recently passed away, and many people rated him the greatest preacher uh, while he was ministering, said this, we must pray scripturally. And we must read the scriptures prayerfully. See, these are all things we know. It must be first and foremost in our life. And look how the Lord Jesus put it. One thing is needful. What does David say? One thing have I desired. It doesn't mean David is ignoring administration or war when it is needed. But the priority must be so. What does the, the Apostle Paul say? Forgetting all things, he, press on toward, he presses on toward one goal that is to know and to grow in Christ. One thing is necessary. When we boil everything down, we must give ourselves to the word and prayer, to the worship of God's people, the, the gathering of God's people to the worship of God. We have it in Acts. I understand you're going through Acts, or you try to stay away from the book of Acts. But Acts 2.42, this is what was fundamental to the church. They were devoted to the apostolic doctrine. Devoted to the apostolic doctrine. Devoted to the prayers, that is the appointed prayers of the church. Devoted to the breaking of bread, however often you do it. Devoted to the fellowship, that is, the local church. Devoted. And then, notice what the Lord Jesus says. One thing is needful. Mary has what? Chosen. You've got to make a choice. Many times I wake up in the morning, and I'm tempted... Sometimes I give in to the temptation to look at something else, maybe an urgent message I was waiting for in an email or something exciting that is happening in the future or something of that sort. But you see, we have to make a choice day by day. We have to begin with it. And when we fail, we often do. We have to ask the Lord's forgiveness. Mary has chosen the good part. We have to choose to come to church. We have to choose to prepare to come to church. We all come reasonably well-dressed. But we have to prepare ourselves within our own souls. She has chosen the good part. These are fundamental things, isn't it? And these are the things where we fail. We can look at... We can look at all the impossibilities of a small congregation. There are many things. I remember 
uh, one uh, missionary many years ago saying in a church meeting, we ought to do this because these churches are doing this at uh, uh, such and such a place in the railway station and the, you know, but we don't have a railway station. We can look at a lot of things that we cannot do. But the fundamental thing is to look at what the Lord stresses, the word and prayer. And we have to choose to do it. Let's not be people of trend. You know how terrible trend is. Trends don't build lasting things. All you have to do is look at your pictures when you were in your 20s. You want to hide from the kind of clothes you wear and uh, have worn. At least I did do. The lasting and the central thing is the word. We have to order our lives around. We're not naturally prone to the word. How does the hymn writer put it? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We don't naturally delight. We have to choose to do this. And then lastly, with a rebuke, which shall not be taken away from Here's Martha doing everything. And she gets corrected. Well, we need this correction. I need this correction. When I open my Bible or when I'm thinking about Scripture, I need to think, how does the Scripture help me love the Lord or correct me for my lack of love for God? And we need to give ourselves to the Word and pray. Disordered love. Don't we live with that in our lives? personally and as a church. So, brothers and sisters, don't deviate from this. Be devoted to the apostolic doctrine. The apostolic doctrine is based upon the Old Testament scriptures. We will look at the Old Testament scriptures God aligned this evening, containing the whole counsel of the Word of God. And to the prayers, every prayer meeting that is based upon the scriptures that you can come to. Don't worry about others. And you must choose to do this. And I must choose, not only because I'm paid to do this, but I must come because it's the word of God that gives birth to life. Everything else is extraneous. In 1 Peter, it's the seed of the word of God by which we have been given new life. And it is by the word of God, if we desire it like newborn babes, desire milk, then we grow by it. The Lord Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Well, may the Lord by his spirit enable preacher and people alike, not only here, but in our day in every place, to take this gentle rebuke, needed rebuke about disordered loves and lives and joys. And then we give ourselves afresh to the word and prayer. Amen. Let's respond by singing hymn number 
understanding if you're able and I will close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We all need your word to correct, reprove, and so build us up in the most holy faith. And Lord, we pray that you will give us an increasing hunger for you through your word and prayer. And may this be the mark of our individual lives and more importantly, our collective life as the local church. Lord, grant your will according to your revealed will and by the power of the Spirit. For this we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.